This morning's sermon text is Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Gotta love Malachi. All right, let's pray together and then we will jump in. Uh, Father God, we praise you this morning that you are our firm foundation. God, that you are our refuge and strength. That when everything around us seems unstable, when the world seems crazy and people disappoint us, your power and your love and your faithfulness are unwavering. God, make us a people who put our hope in you people who know our need for salvation and who trust in the fullness of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. God, we praise you that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and that you love us despite our imperfection because of Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, how are you doing? Go Astros, right? Get that out of the way. Whatever you prayed for and promised in that prayer, make good on it, okay? I don't advise promising anything, but if you did, you know, hold up your end. Uh, and I'm just thankful it's over so I don't have to stay up that late again. I don't do well staying up that late. So, great to be here. Glad that's over with. So, I don't typically like to retell stories that I've told from the pulpit. It makes me start to feel as old as I am becoming. But since I last told this story nine years ago, when the church was like 20 people, I think I can get away with it. On top of that, I think that laughs are good in the book of Malachi, because we're not really going to get many of them from the text, right? We're six weeks in, and it's been pretty rough. So as many of you know, I did my postgraduate work, uh, my seminary work at Regent College up in Vancouver, Canada, about 20 years ago. And lots of great memories from there, but one of the funnier memories I have 
was from a philosophy class with a professor named Lauren Wilkinson. And Professor Wilkinson was this large, bearded, large-bodied lover of nature. He was a tree-hugging man. He lived out on the island on some sustainable, cool farm. The Matkins would have loved him. Um, he was a little crazy. And so at the start of every one of these classes, he would look down the list of all the people in the class, and he would just randomly pick four students to call up in front of the class to ask them questions from that week's reading. And on the evening before this day in question, I had read three chapters of reading, but something extremely important must have come up because I didn't get to the last chapter, the fourth chapter. I didn't think much of it because what are the chances, right, that I'm going to be called on, and even if I am called on, that it would be a question from that one chapter. So I showed up for class early, because I always am early. Before the professor arrived, I quietly make my way to my desk, and as I went to sit down in my seat, there was a ripping noise, a ripping noise. I was like, what is that? And so these are the days before the wonderful invention of stretchy denim, right? Praise Jesus. This was when, when your body stretches and your denim jeans don't, they just explode. And that's what happened. They exploded, and it wasn't a little rip, it was like a barn door. And I'm usually a pretty decisive person in critical situations. Like, I'm the guy you want with you when things go south. But in this instance, I froze. I sat there thinking about what to do rather than doing what I needed to do. I just sat there. And then when I was about to get up and run like I should have, the professor walked in. It was bad. It was one of those moments where I knew that God was at work. I knew I had a lesson to learn, and everything I thought couldn't happen was about to happen. Every bit of it. Professor Wilkinson walks in, pulls out the list, he starts calling names. First one, not me. Second one, not me. Third one, nope, not me. Fourth one, Patrick Wimberly, come on down. I'm like, raise my hand, excuse me, Professor, could I, could I go another day? Why? Well, uh, I ripped my pants. <laughs> he laughs at me. He's like, are you serious? I was like, I'm really serious. And he's like, well, he's like, is that your jacket? He's like, yes, sir. He's like, just wrap it around your waist and come on up here. <laughs> so you can probably imagine how things go down from this point. For people, for chairs, for questions, for chapters of reading, and I'm person number four who didn't read chapter number four. And so I just walked up to my chair in front of the class with my ripped pants, laughing at God's wonderful sanctification as I listened to question one. I knew the answer. Question two, I knew the answer. Question three, I knew it. And then question four, chapter four. This is the chapter where it took all the information from the first three chapters and it told you why all of that stuff was important, what all of it was about. It was the chapter that tied everything together. And he asked me my question and I didn't even try, right? At this point, I knew that trying to fumble through an answer would only add foolishness 
to the situation if that were even possible at all. I just said, I, di- I didn't read. Like, I didn't, I didn't read the chapter. I didn't tell him I read all the other ones because you just sound like, sure you did. Yeah. I just took my humiliation and my ripped jeans back to my seat and I sat in shame for an hour as I waited for the minutes to pass by so I could run away. And so, you might ask, what does this have to do with the book of Malachi? And the truth is, very little. But the way that I approached my reading that day was how the Israelites were approaching their faith. See, I had all the information. I read the first three chapters. I had all of the pieces, but I didn't see or or couldn't understand how it all goes together. I neglected the one thing that truly mattered from the reading. What does this mean? What is all of this stuff pointing to? The Israelites in our text this morning are standing before God with a metaphorical rip in their pants. They had all the pieces of the puzzle laying before them. They knew the scriptures. They knew how God had called them to live. They knew God had promised a deliverer, but they missed what it all meant. They misunderstood what they needed delivered from. And so here's the thing. If, if we don't understand what our ultimate need is in this life, if we don't understand our ultimate problem, we will always be chasing other things, always trying to address issues that cannot ultimately save. It's like treating the symptoms of a disease but never the cause. We may get this momentary relief, but the issues will keep coming back time and time again. See, if we convince ourselves that our our primary issues in this life are situational, that they're external to ourselves, that they're these challenges we face, these Goliaths that we must slay on our way to self-actualization, we're going to pursue things that simply cannot bring life, that cannot save. And the truth is that that some of you are going to achieve every goal that you ever decide you want to achieve, right? That's you. While others are going to achieve very few of the goals they set before themselves, but in the end, neither will be satisfied by those achievements or the lack thereof Because when we are blind to our greatest need, it is impossible impossible to pursue that which will truly satisfy. And that's what's going on with the Israelites. Everything God had told them, everything God had done was pointing them to one problem and one promised solution, but they missed it. Their long-awaited Savior, the Messiah, wasn't coming to save them from their political problems. He wasn't coming to save them from their financial crisis. He wasn't coming to save them from foreign occupation. The Savior was coming to deal with the problem of sin. This is what everything God has done, had done, was, was pointing towards Everything in the Old Testament, the repeated failure of God's people, their utter inability to be holy through the law, 
It was intended to illuminate the devastating power of sin and to make them a people who looked to God for grace, a people who longed for the promised Messiah. And people struggle as much today as the Israelites did back then with the reality that this Messiah, that Jesus was not coming and did not come to fix all of our temporal struggles. That's so hard for our culture to grasp because we struggle to realize our real need. But Jesus came to bring abundant and eternal life by overthrowing the reign of sin and death that has ruled since the time of Adam and Eve. Jesus came to bring true, everlasting freedom and life. The whole Bible, from the beginning to the end, is telling the story of God's plan of redemption in the world. It's about God making a way through the blood of Christ to bring us into his presence. God's plan of redemption through Jesus is not about solving all of our earthly problems. It's not about your best life now. It's about your best life for eternity. Like the Israelites, there are countless numbers of modern-day Christians who think that God's plan in this world is to make Christianity the next great political power, to enact justice in this country, to make us influential in the eyes of the world, to bring us health and wealth and comfort on this earth, right? Just to make life easier. But if you actually read the Bible, this couldn't be further from the truth, So when we come to our text here in verse 17, the Israelites are looking at their lives under the thumb of Persian rule. They're struggling financially and politically and spiritually, and they do what we're tempted to do when we struggle, when when things aren't how we think they should be. They blame God. They question God's faithfulness. They look at the pagan nations around them thriving, and they say, God must delight in evil. They say, where is this God of justice? And we're going to cover the topic of justice in more detail next week, but this week I want to focus on the problem of sin and the sanctifying and merciful work of Christ in dealing with sin. See, the Israelites, they never cease to amaze Right? They weren't just fools. They were like crazy fools. They were nuts. They stare at God in the face and basically say, you're not holy. You take pleasure in sin, God. We've waited long enough for this Messiah. And what do we have to show for it? Right? And we're, we're week six now. Right? The first two chapters of Malachi have made clear that the Israelites were anything but faithful to God. But that didn't stop them from challenging his faithfulness. And God responds here in chapter 3 by assuring them that the promised Messiah was coming. But he was not coming to make them a political powerhouse in the world. He was coming to deal with sin. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. 
Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so in this verse, there are three different people spoken of. The first person is I. Behold, I sinned. And this I is identified at the end, says, says the Lord of hosts. So the speaker is God the Father. And then the second individual mentioned is God's messenger who prepares the way. Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way. So, so who is this messenger? Matthew 11, verse 10, quotes this exact verse to identify John the Baptist. He is the one who came to prepare the way for Christ. And he came preaching repentance. He came to point the Israelites and to point us to the problem of sin. This is how he prepared the way for Jesus. But he didn't just call for repentance. He pointed them to the Messiah. In John chapter 1, Jesus arrives near the Jordan where John was baptizing, and John proclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, John's ministry was to prepare the way for Christ's first coming to preach repentance, and to proclaim salvation through Jesus Christ. And our ministry as the children of God, as we await Christ's second coming, is to proclaim this same message. Sin has driven a wedge between us and God, but Christ came to bring reconciliation. He came to bring salvation. This impassable canyon between us and God has been bridged by the blood of Jesus. We have been called to proclaim this good news and to point people to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, just as John the Baptist did. The gospel call to repentance is both a turning from sin and trusting in Christ, turning to Christ. And as we talked about last week, it's not just our hope of salvation but it is through repentance that we experience God's pleasure and his presence in our daily lives. A life of repentance is a life that daily battles against the deception of sin through the indwelling power of Jesus. Because if you continue in sin, if you go through life day after day with an unrepentant heart, the best case scenario is that you will not experience God's presence in your life. But chances are, if that is a perpetual unrepentance, you just don't know God. You're in danger of missing the Messiah because of an unwillingness to look at your own sin, to look at your own heart. So if you take nothing else from this sermon, what I, what I hope you hear, as we said at the beginning, is Christ came to deal with sin. If you think you can call yourself a Christian and not actively battle sin in your life, you've missed it. Sin is not a part of the problem. It's not part of the reason Jesus came. It is exactly why he came. And if we neglect or ignore the reality of sin in our lives, then we are neglecting the saving work of Jesus on our behalf. Which brings us to the third individual mentioned here in verse 1. It is the Messiah. It is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. 
and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then God the Father goes on to describe how Jesus will come. He says, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So, the text doesn't say that he's like a forest fire, right? It doesn't say that he's like an incinerator's fire. It says that he's a refiner's fire. See, a forest fire burns and destroys indiscriminately. And an incinerator consumes completely. But if we skip down to verse 6, it says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed, are not destroyed. The fact that, that the deliverer, the Messiah, that Jesus is a refiner's fire makes all the difference. A refiner's fire does not destroy indiscriminately like a forest fire. A refiner's fire does not consume completely like the fire of an incinerator. A refiner's fire refines. It purifies. It melts down this bar of gold or silver and separates out, separates out the impurities that ruin its value, it, and it burns them up, and it leaves the silver and the gold pure and intact. Jesus is like a refiner's fire. And the impurities that are being burned away are sin. We are being made holy through the refining work of Jesus in our lives. But it still says fire, right? It's fire, and fire is dangerous. It can be painful. See, the pursuit of holiness and purity is always painful. It's difficult. It will always be costly. But Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Purity comes through the refiner's fire. The furnace of affliction in the family of God is always for our refinement. It's never for our destruction. God places us in the midst of trials and struggles and difficulty to burn away the impurity of sin that is embedded in our hearts, to direct us toward God in faith, to shape us into the image of Christ. This refinement teaches us to stop loving the gifts of God and to direct our hearts to the giver of those gifts. Christ's death on the cross freed us from the bondage of sin in our lives, but the battle against sin wages on. His refining is the mercy of God towards us. This is why James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4 says, count it all. All joy, 
my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The refining fire produces steadfastness. It increases our faith. We, we need to be refined. But I want to be clear here. You cannot refine yourself. You cannot will yourself into purity. If you could get rid of your own sin, you wouldn't need refining. You wouldn't need Jesus. But the reality is that apart from Christ, we would never choose holiness. We would never choose the hard road of faithfulness. In his mercy, Christ came to destroy the reign of sin in the hearts of God's children. And the message we've been called to proclaim to the world as ambassadors of Christ is that there is a hope that far surpasses the good things of this world. There is a, a joy that is far more satisfying than the momentary pleasure of sin. And there is an eternal dwelling place in heaven prepared for all who call upon the name of the Lord. So how exactly does God refine us? What does that look like? And I think there are a multitude of ways, but I want to look at two overarching areas of life where Christ's work of refinement is seen most clearly. And first, we experience the fire of refinement through struggles. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then Hebrews 12, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. If you are left without discipline, then you are illegitimate children. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. It's like a good father disciplines for our good. Christians like to throw around the verse, for those who love God, all things work together for good, right? Some of you cross-stitched in the bathroom. It's a favorite Cross-stitching used to be cool. I did it when I was in middle school, actually. It's pretty good. For those who love God, all things work together for good. It's true. It's biblical. But we must understand that when we read this verse, our good may not equate to our comfort. Our good may not equate to our affluence. Your good may not mean that your plans work out. It may not mean that your desires are fulfilled. It may not mean that your life looks anything like you'd hoped it look. 
In the furnace of Christ's refining fire, the reality is oftentimes the best thing for us is failure. Right? Some of you don't even like that word. Ooh, failure. Or struggle. Sometimes the best thing for us is pain. Sometimes when God closes a door, it doesn't mean that he's going to open a window. Right? That's cool at Hallmark. Right? It may mean that he's going to let the whole house of your dreams come crashing down on you. God does work all things together for good, but your ultimate good is to grow in holiness, to be in the presence of God, which may not equate to your comfort or affluence or temporal satisfaction in the moment. When the economy crashed back in 2009, I experienced the refining fire of affliction. I had been in commercial real estate for one year, closed one big deal. I was super rich now, right? The money was about to start rolling in, and then the rug got pulled out from under me. We didn't close a deal for a year and a half, big economic downturn. I was frustrated with God, frustrated with myself, frustrated with everything. It was a tremendous struggle and strain during this season of our lives because it's hard to live when you don't make money, right? But when I look back on those days and, and God's timing, I feel like the whole economic crisis was for me. Sorry, everybody else. Yeah. It was God's merciful refinement as he whittled away this sin in my heart. Because if my plans had worked out, I probably wouldn't be standing here today and, and my life would look very different. And from a worldly perspective, I think I would probably be much better off. But there's no question in my mind that those years of suffering were for my good. That they were for the good of my family. And when I say good, what I mean is that money is tight and life is busy and I often feel like I'm way over my head. But I know that God is refining me. He is shaping me. He is using all of this to continue to melt away the sin that is ever present in my life. The refining fire of struggles is always painful, but it is always for your good. Secondly, we experience the fire of refinement through the body of Christ, through the believing community. Proverbs 27, verse 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Another favorite verse, right? This one's super bro-y. Like, dudes like to put this on a shirt and be like, we are iron sharpening iron. But have you ever thought about like how iron sharpens iron? You're taking two extremely hard objects and rubbing them against each other in such a way that metal is removed. You're stripping away rough edges by grinding force. That, that doesn't sound comfortable at all. That's kind of like life in a covenant community, right? It's hard. Investing in people's lives, struggling alongside one another, Breaking down the walls of individualism and pride stretches us. It refines us. There's times when it's much easier to avoid community 
to pull away from relationships, to not engage in the first place, to hide in the comfort of anonymity and autonomy. But we need the refining of the community of faith. We need people to encourage us when our faith is weak, to rejoice with us when we triumph, to comfort us when we mourn, and to admonish us when we stumble. And when it comes to sin, the reality is that we are often the last person to see the sin in our own lives, right? We have blind spots to the sin that is in our lives, even when it's obvious to everyone else around us. Sin is kind of like an ugly baby, right? Amen? Like the only person that doesn't know your baby is ugly is you because it's your baby, probably looks like you. <laughs> now, I'm not advocating that we start telling people their babies are ugly, okay? Don't do that, even if it's true. But if we're going to live out the covenant that we've been called to as the people of God, we must call sin, sin. All babies are cute, all sin is ugly, all right? Well, that'll be a good, take that home with you. We must be so engaged in the lives of one another that we can both take and receive admonishment, give and receive admonishment with humility and with grace. This is the refining fire of Christ in our lives. I've been on the giving and receiving end of rebuke on countless occasions, and it's never enjoyable for either side, right? It's not fun. But when the love of Christ controls us, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, these conversations become the building blocks of an unshakable unity. You need the body, and the body needs you. To avoid the refining fire of covenant community is to avoid the sanctifying grace that God has offered you in your life as part of his church. So I'll sum things up with Paul's words from 1 Timothy 1.15. says, this, or the saying, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Christ came to save sinners. There's no sin too egregious. There's no past too dark to nullify the saving work of Christ in your life. If you don't know Christ, if you've never experienced his love, he's calling you to himself today. He's saying today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe. And if you're a believer and the struggles of life are, are weighing heavy on your heart, if the furnace of Christ's refining fire seems too much to bear, he's saying, you will not be consumed. Draw near to me. Stand firm in Christ. Trust in his faithfulness. Lean into the body of believers God has put in your life. The refiner's fire is for your good. It is for your holiness. And it is preparing you for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let's pray together.
Father God, we thank you that you love us too much to let us remain in our sin. God, thank you that you love us so much that you allow us to struggle, that you allow us to experience pain at times, to draw us near to you, to refine us, to burn up deep-rooted sin. Father God, we ask that you would make us a people who find joy even in the midst of struggle. People who live lives of daily repentance, turning from sin and trusting in you again and again and again, knowing that you are working all things together for good, knowing that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God, let us enjoy the ex- enjoy the joy of your presence. God, draw near to us this morning. Amen.